it. So there's this paradox where individuals are sometimes overconfident and shouldn't be quite as confident, especially around the edges. Uh, mm-hmm. But the crowds are underconfident and you might want to extremize, make them more confident. Um, and so it works differently for individuals versus collections or crowds. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Pavel Atanasov. He is a decision scientist and co-founder at PISO, using decision science to measure and improve human judgment and prediction. He has a PhD in psychology and decision science from the University of Pennsylvania, focusing on crowd predictions. Today, we'll talk about decision science, how to become a super forecaster, and how can data scientists be better at updating models. And if you've been enjoying the show, subscribe to the channel and give me a five-star review. Welcome to the show, Pavel. Thank you, Daliana. Thank you for having me here. It's it's a pleasure to, to, to be with you. Can you share a little bit of your career journey? Sure. So I started out uh, in my uh, in college. I majored in psychology and economics, uh, which later turned into my lifelong interest in behavioral economics um, and behavioral science, uh, with a heavy emphasis on statistics. So after college, I went to an economic consultancy analysis group, um, where the most exciting part of the work was. Um, um, in the healthcare practice and healthcare economics, where we were dealing with very large data sets with claims, uh, health claims, and we were testing hypotheses about you know how certain how taking a certain drug might affect future behavior. So I gained a lot of um, experience in both just you know statistical coding with big data. Back then it was with SAS. Since then I'm working mostly with R. But it was very widely used uh, back back in the time, and also thinking through patterns over time, thinking through how the data connects to real outcomes. With health, you can you can easily relate it because it's it's literally life and death, and um, yeah. very important health outcomes. And so since then, I have I have always tried to do more work with data because I really enjoy that part and uh, keeping an eye for interesting. Uh, projects related to the life sciences. So after two years of that, I went back to um, I went back to academia to do a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. It was in psychology um, uh, in a field that we call judgment and decision making. It's very close to behavioral science and behavioral economics. But you basically um, try to find out how people make decisions, especially about uncertain events. Um, how they make decisions over time, uh, how they make ethical decisions. And um, I used a mixture of experimental data, so bringing folks into a lab or doing a lab experiment, as well as uh, some um, observational data. Uh, we did a very interesting project with uh, uh, the Price is Right data from the TV show where we found a fan site with thousands and thousands of um of, of episodes and we wanted to look how people bid on the show. So that was one interesting d- data d- d- data bit uh, as part of the PhD. So at the end of the, of, of the five years, uh, I was looking for, for the next step um, and um, two new professors had joined from the University of, uh, from University of California at Berkeley, 
Barbara Mellers and Phil Tetlock, they had just started an exciting project called the Good Judgment Project that was about forecasting politics. And it was 2012, so the U.S. presidential election was just, the campaign was just ramping up. I was reading a lot on trying to forecast it with with different models. And I thought, okay, well, if I join this project, I get to do forecasting, which I find very fun, and I get to do it for a living. So, So I joined. Um, and um, I was I was a, a postdoc uh, at UPenn uh, as part of the Good Judgment Project for three years. Uh, I was working on topics like comparing prediction markets and prediction polls, coming up with new aggregation algorithms for putting in together the forecast that people were giving us. So, like an example, maybe like who will win the next G- German election, and then we'll have thousands of people making probabilistic forecasts uh, on uh, on this question and about a hundred other questions every nine months. And then in real time, every day we would look at all the forecasts that are coming in. Or, uh, we will aggregate them statistically and send them out to our, foreca- to our sponsor, who was uh, IARPA. It's Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. And a point of the project was to make the the most accurate probabilistic forecast on geopolitical events that we could make. So after my first year in the project, um, our team based at UPenn was so far ahead of all the other teams that we became, uh, so there were five research teams, but after my first year in the project, we basically won the forecasting tournament. So for for the two years, there was no real horse race. There was mostly just us running experiments and learning about how how you make better forecasts. So I, I've been doing this work ever since. Uh, I did one year of uh, uh, fintech product development and then went back to, to, to co-found Pito with my research and business partner, Regina Joseph. And we have been working on uh, crowd prediction and improving forecasting uh, ever since. So it's been about 10 years in total and six years with, with with uh, with the with the company I co-founded called Pito. Yeah, thanks for sharing your journey. It sounds like you're doing something you are already interested in doing, and that's a great job. Yeah, it's, it's always um, it's always fun to develop an interest, and then to find out that you know you can actually do that for a living. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's it's fortunate in that way. Yeah. So before you uh, started doing this for a job versus you imagine doing this for a living, what was the difference? Did you feel this is exactly what you wanted to do? Yeah. So um, initially I started reading on forecasting research. I was reading, you know, Nate Silver's blog about, it was back then a blog, 538 about yeah. forecasting the elections. I was, I was, you know, I had the quantitative background to to get into that, and also the interest in psychology to think about like, okay, well, how are people good or bad at making forecasts, and how can we improve that? Um, mm-hmm. So it was an intense interest, but I wasn't sure that it's something that you know people can actually do uh, for a living. So, so the day to day is you know, it, it's a job, right? It, it involves a lot of background stuff, you know, it involves meetings and prepping and, and, and memos and, and things like that. But you keep in the perspective that 
you know, you know that what you're doing is important and interesting, and ultimately you find something, you find something new, and uh, you help people predict better, and that's uh, that's that's the overarching goal that 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 moves me in um, in in doing this work. Yeah. So, can you tell us more about the um, experiments you did with the geopolitical、um, forecasting tournament? Yeah, so、um, so the setup was in addition to us competing with other research teams, we also ran experiments within our research team. So, for example, one research team, one experiment we run was、um, we would take、uh, over a thousand forecasters who who were volunteering to take part of 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 this、uh, of this study, and we'll randomly assign them、uh, to either. Being a prediction market where people make bids, you know, they buy and sell contracts related to certain events. In this case, it was play money, not not real money.、Um, or they make forecasts.、Uh, they they give us probabilities. What's the likelihood that th- this event will happen? And then、yeah. we aggregate those those forecasts. So we run one experiment where we compare those two,、um, mm-hmm. and. So found, the experiment was to find out who, which group are better forecasters. Yeah, which group or which which system is better at eliciting and aggregating forecasts.、Um, so that was that was one type of work is to testing different systems,、um, and we found that in certain cases prediction polls work better, especially when there's a long time between when you ask the question and when when the answer comes through. Uh, and in others, you, you know, the, the the two are almost equal. The other part of the work was finding who are the better people, who are the better forecasters, right?、Mm. Um, and so that involves a lot of psychometric work, a lot of looking at information over time,、um, tracking their accuracy, right? If someone keeps giving you forecasts that are closer to reality, that's that's what you want.、Um, yeah. But before you have that. That information before you know their accuracy, there's other signs that you you can look at. So, we spend a lot of time looking at data, trying to predict like who are who are the better forecasters and who should get more weight in our aggregation algorithms.、Mm-hmm. Cool.、Um, can you share more about?、Um, so, how did you find out who are the better forecasters or who are the better systems, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, so if you have enough time and you collect, you have people answer like hundreds of questions. The best thing you can do is, you know, you wait until the questions resolve. You know if the event occurred or not. You know how close someone's probabilistic forecast was to the reality. If you have a lot of time、uh, and a lot of fun funds to run such a big tournament, that's the best thing you can do. But short of that. We're looking for early signs of 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 people who are great, and uh, um, so w- one thing we did was look at psychometric. Oh,、data. sorry、uh, to interrupt. So for folks who are not familiar with the geopolitical forecasting tournament, can you give us a little bit background on how does the tournament works? Yeah. So basically,、uh, if you're a forecaster, you enter the tournament, and you see. Dozens and dozens of questions. So, a question may be, "Who will win the next election in France?"、Um, will Vladimir Putin remain president of Russia by the end of two thousand and twenty-two? Will there be a significant 
pandemic outbreak in in, in the U.S. Right, and so uh, you you look at all these questions, and then your your goal as a forecaster is to make the most accurate probabilistic estimates that you can. Um, and so over the course of several months, usually six or nine months, you make forecasts, and then when when the effects when uh, when the events happen or not happen, you you learn how accurate you were. Uh, and so from our perspective as a researcher, as, as a set of researchers, we're looking at how events unfold and we're trying to predict, okay, who are the best forecasters? Who should get the most weight? And how do we make the most mm-hmm. accurate prediction? Got it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and uh, I forgot where we were at. I think you were talking about uh, uh, looking at the um, some priors of the predictors, um, going back to the experiment some priors yeah so so let's say someone joins the someone joins the study and you don't know almost anything about them what is what are some of the first things mm-hmm. that you want to learn about this person um one yeah. one is a set of psychometric tests that we give right so we ask them questions about numeracy like how good are you at dealing with numbers that's important because you're dealing with probabilities we ask them questions about Mm. knowledge in the subject matter domain so that may be knowledge about politics or geography or uh, in economics that could be in the life sciences if you're running that kind of study and then people start forecasting and one thing that 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 we find is soon after they, they they join we maybe we don't know what will happen in the future, so we don't we don't know how accurate they are. But we but we start to see how they update their beliefs. And one thing that we found that was a an important uh, pattern is that the the forecasters who are the best tend to update their beliefs in in small but frequent increments. So a great forecaster might say, well, I think this event is twenty percent likely, and then go down to eighteen, and then go up to twenty three, and then go down to fifteen. Versus a not so accurate forecaster who might either almost never update or update in very large increments, so they'll basically be flip flopping. So we look for for signs like that to to find out who is really paying attention, who is really careful, and who is processing information in 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 the right way, in the sense that they get to the answer uh, quickly and 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 they stay with the information flow. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, uh, so what, what was the um, outcome of the research and what did you learn? What makes someone a better forecaster than others? Yeah. So um, one way I, I like to think about it is as, uh, you know, the, uh, the human brain or the human mind is an information processing system. So one thing that helps you be better is if you already know more, right? So if, if you know mm. more about the subject matter, that's helpful. Um, but it's not nearly enough. So another thing that you need to do is to constantly look out for new information. You need to know how to look things up, uh, how, how, how do you test if, if it's a good information or not. It's a little bit like being a data scientist where it helps to know a lot about statistics and coding, but there's a lot of stuff you don't know, so you need to know how to how to look up new information and how to update over time. And then it helps to have just you know strong hardware in the sense that you know your your brain can process 
efficiently all that information and and the the, the more the better and finally it helps to to think of forecasting as a continuous activity if you get asked a question it's not it's not a one and done right you don't just make a forecast and leave you have to keep uh, constantly keep it fresh in order in, in order to, to do well over time mm -hmm. yeah thanks for sharing that and then i read your uh, paper and the uh, blog post so you mentioned uh, i think there are three elements one is uh, training teaming and tracking can you explain more about uh, what are the what do the three elements mean and how they help uh, people become better forecasters? Yeah, so um, training is basically something that we did at the Gujarat project and something that we continue to do with Pito. It's usually a short module, maybe half an hour, maybe one hour, that just gives you basic tools about how to think about predictions. So I'll give you an example. Usually. When, when you come up with a, when you see a new prediction problem, you can form what's called a base rate. You can look at some historical information mm -hmm. and try to make a guesstimate about how likely the event is. Not, not because the event, not because you know so much about the event, but you know something about the history. So here's an example. Um, you mm -hmm. can, uh, I might ask you what, what are the chances that the next World Cup is won by a South American team. Well, um, maybe you don't know too much about soccer, but you can look at the last 10 World Cups, and that's what I call the rule of 10, which is basically a, re a reference class of 10 past events that gives you like a rough sense of where things are going. So you can look at the last 10 World Cups and find that actually three out of those 10 World Cups were won by South American teams, and that already gives you a base rate. Good starting point to think is, you know, 30%. So we teach forecasters tricks like this that help them um, that help them get better, set initial, uh, better initial estimates like base rates, update over time, look up information in more efficient ways. And, and we have found over several experiments that even half an hour of training can significantly improve your accuracy over many months after that. So that's making everyone better. That's making the forecasters better. Teaming is about improving people's set uh, environment. So basically, in a team, you may you may be matched with ten or fifteen other people, and you work with them to discover the answers to those questions. Um, you know, who win the next election in France? Well, maybe one person in the team is is from France. Another person know something about the election system. A third person is looking at, at the polls and knows how to th think you know, well about you know, modeling th those polls. So ideally, you have a team of people who bring in different aspects uh, of uh, different information and different aspects of the problem, and together you can figure it out better than, uh, than you would independently. So, Teaming improves the, the accuracy of the individual forecaster as well. And finally, tracking is, um, is about finding out who is good, who is consistently good. Uh, in this case, it means accurate. And then taking those folks and putting them in what we call elite teams or super forecaster teams together. And we find that when we do that, 
they really thrive on being able to work together in this sort of enriched environment where there are other people who really care about this topic and are really smart and really knowledgeable. Um, and that creates a, a dynamic where, where people are working harder, they're thinking better, and eventually uh, making more accurate forecasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about teaming. So that's, uh, I think you also talk about the wisdom of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question. So sometimes the crowd doesn't always make the best decision, sure. right? And, you know, people talk about the idea of groupthink. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you might also be biased by the people around you. So how can you pick the best crowd to find out the wisdom of it instead of, uh, you know, becoming uh, biased towards it? Right. So this is another part of training, which is how do you work well in a team? You know, we teach forecasters things like, Mm -hmm. you know, find ways to disagree with your teammates without being disagreeable. So, you know, check their assumptions without without being mean, but just like with the idea that you're all trying to find out the truth, right? And so that helps a mm-hmm. lot uh, to avoid things like group things where one person says something and everyone else just follows. Um, yeah. Another thing that helps is that it's an online environment. Often you've never seen f- f- uh, those folks in person. Maybe over time you develop a relationship, but initially you're just a team in an online environment. So. All the, all the issues with hierarchy are not so important, right? You don't have a boss. You, you, you're all there trying to figure out the same questions together. And that makes it easier to disagree with someone who, you know, may be older than you and maybe ahead in their career. But on this team, you're all equal and you're all trying to find out the answer. And you know that after some time, the answer will be known and the accuracy of your team will be tracked. And so you you want to maximize your chances that once uh, that once that happens, you come out ahead. So it's not so it's not so mm-hmm. much about you know I have this toy theory that I want it to be true. Well, you might have a toy theory, but at the, at the, at the end you'll be proven right or wrong. And knowing knowing that motivates people to think more clearly, and not fall prey to. Um, to to group think and just work hard to 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 find out the answer. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of selecting a crowd, um, what is the best way to select the crowd that makes back decisions? So, for example, maybe we want to select a crowd that has diverse background, so people think differently. Or do you want to select a group where they all have a lot of uh, um, statistics or kind of logical right. training? Yeah, so what what we found in these studies is actually very simple, that um, for the elite teams that we formed, we just selected one thing, which is past performance at this task. Now, it happens that you know mm. people approach the task differently and they have other different ways to get to the right answer, so you do get some diversity anyway. Um, but the most important thing, or the one that worked the best, was just getting folks who are best at this, putting them together um, in, you know, sometimes pretty small team. And then the, the knowledge and smarts and motivation 
uh, formed sort of a virtuous circle. So we were not able to specifically test hypotheses about diversity. We know about that literature, but in 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 this in this setup, the amount of the number of teams that we had that we had to put together to test the diversity hypothesis was just too large. So we didn't quite test that. But one thing that we know works was just you know find people who did well. On a, on a task and have them do the same or very similar task uh, together. And that seems to work uh, quite well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, going back to the story of how we met, uh, it was because of a LinkedIn post. I think I posted, consistency is overrated. You should update your opinion, like how you update a Bayesian algorithm and you shared your article with me and uh, can you share more about how we can effectively update our opinions yeah so uh, one thing we found is that the best forecasters are those who change their beliefs in frequent small increments and so the Mm -hmm. the way to turn that into an advice is to say try to avoid large surprises. So if you're trying to make a prediction, even if you're building a large model or if you're making some decisions about your life, try to avoid large surprises in the future. And the way you do that is first by doing careful research at, at the at, at the beginning so that your views are more likely to be correct from the start. But then uh, the second step is that you're proactive in finding out new information, which makes you um, change your mind a little bit, but it's usually an incremental. Um, in, 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 in many things in life, you can find out some leading indicators of whether the event might happen or not that make you update incrementally so that you're not surprised when, when the event actually happens. Um, and we find that this is a very consistent trait among people. So people who update in certain ways tend to do it over many, over several years. And, but it's not just, you know, if I tell you to just update in small increments, it's not going to help. It's mostly about being careful from the start and being proactive after that to, to find out how maybe your assumptions are not perfect. Maybe there's some information that you didn't think about before. Maybe the information yeah. wasn't present at the start, but now it is. And so, you know, um, as as the world changes, so should uh, so should your beliefs uh, about the world. Yeah, and I always have this question. I think we do need to update our opinions, but if we say always update our opinions, it's so overwhelming. Our brain gets exhausted, and you also might become too sensitive to the information, right? It's like the recommendation algorithm. Maybe I buy something for my friend, the algorithm changed, and then uh, the entire trajectory changes. We also don't want that. So how do we find out the best frequency to update our opinion? Yeah, so it's important to to do what we call uh, triaging. So in a a hospital, you might uh, look at, you know, the patients who are already dying, right? Maybe you can't help them so much. Uh, The patients who are pretty well uh, and, you know, would do well even without much medical attention and the ones who do need attention if you if you spend time with them or if you spend medical resources on them, they will get better, but otherwise they'll get worse. And so it's a, it's a similar issue with, uh, with predictions, right? So some things are more important to you than others. Some um, about 
so on some topics, information comes in faster than in other cases. And so you want to spend the most, the most time updating your beliefs about things that really matter to you and for which there's a lot of, there's a lot of new information over time. Um, and so that's, uh, that means that you may not update as much on, on other issues, but, but that's okay because we only have 24 hours and we only have one brain. And so we need to, we need to triage, we need to allocate our, our, our attention, uh, you know, as well as we can. That is as smart as we can get, you know, it's still a very much a limited resource. So we need to um, allocate it very carefully. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, are there other things that you want to share about some learnings from um, finding the super forecasters besides the three elements we just talked about? Yeah, um, one one thing I would note is that um, it is it is incredible to find an environment where so many of the people you work with are really interested in a topic, really knowledgeable about it, and really trying to do their best. That's something that that worked mm-hmm. about uh, about the super teams. And uh, by the way, my research and business partner Regina Joseph is a super forecaster, so that's partly how how, how we met. Um, but yeah. uh, you know, there's the inside view about how it feels to be part of a group, to be part of almost like a fellowship of other people who share your interests um, and and work towards the same goal as you. When you find out such a group, you know, amazing things can happen. And whether it's forecasting or product development, whatever it is, it's it's a very valuable thing. And um, and I know that super forecasters still. Um, treasure that kind of uh, community that 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 uh, that that they became a part of, and that's that's something that's underappreciated uh, sometimes in 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 making groups work well or, or or making teams perform at a high level over over long periods of time. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, also, let's now talk about forecasting systems. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, polls, selective markets. Uh, how did you design experiment to find out what is a better system and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so um, a, a lot of what I've been telling you about super forecasters has been about putting them in a team. So then... Uh, in the last year of the Good Judgment project, we wanted to test, okay, well, what if you put, uh, or what if you ask super forecasters to instead work in a market setting where there are no teams, but instead, you know, everybody makes bids and, and ask, you know, they buy and sell contracts and uh, the price changes over time and the current price is, you know, the crowd's best guess at whether the event will happen. So maybe... A, a contract chain uh, trades at thirty cents to the dollar, and that means that the event is about thirty uh, percent likely. So, so when we found that um, the active ingredient that made the difference were the super forecasters themselves, and whether you put them in a team polling settings or a prediction market setting, um, it, the the results were very similar. So how accurate they were uh, didn't didn't change from whether they were in those smaller teams or whether they were in a large mm. prediction market. So a lot of it was about how they how they were thinking, how they communicated with with each other, but not just in a team setting, but also in a large market setting. And um, 
you know, it's uh, we found things that we think are true about high-performing teams, but they also seem to work in a much larger setting where you have a hundred other people um, competing with you, basically in in a market setting. But all of you are again trying to get things right, trying to get as close as possible to the truth that you will discover in the future. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So one thing you mentioned that was quite interesting. So the good forecasters, it doesn't matter where they are, what team they're on, they all perform well. Do you think those people just are better independent thinkers? That must be a lot of it, right? So if you put this, uh, the same type of people who are selected in the same way, if you put them in different environments and they keep mm-hmm. excelling in those different environments, well, that tells yeah. you that you know their skills are at least portable uh, among those environments. So that's so that's very important. Mm-hmm. Now we have some newer work that shows that some of the thinking styles um, don't uh, don't quite translate so well in life sciences and predicting which clinical trials will be successful. But at least within geopolitics, trying out different systems didn't make a significant change in how well people did uh, individually or collectively. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. So again, then what is the difference between uh, making a prediction over the political campaign versus, you know, live science trials? Yeah. So um, a lot of people read about politics, right? At least, you know, if you look at the mm. front page of the New York Times, there'll be a lot of political information yeah. there, right? Uh, many, much fewer people actively care about, you know, which drug is going to come to market drug next year. Discovery. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. So okay. it's a much more specialized yeah. field. Uh, there's more technical knowledge that you need to know about the drugs themselves, mm-hmm. about patients, about how the trials are run, how the FDA regulates uh, the whole process and, you know, um, there's a lot more, I would say, statistical information as well, like what kind of efficacy do you need to yeah. need in order for this drug to come through. So one thing is just it's a more technical setting and it's a different type of uh, knowledge set that, that you need to have. Um, mm-hmm. And so we are finding that um, it helps to have forecasting experience, even in a geopolitical or different setting. Uh, And it helps to know something about uh, the topic, in this case, the life sciences. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's still still hard to predict who will do well in in, in that topic uh, on life sciences. Somewhat harder to predict who will do well than in geopolitics, where a lot of people start with a common knowledge base and then cognitive styles or just cognitive horsepower, you know, is much more predictive of, of, uh, of who does better. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, um, for folks who are not familiar with the selective market, can you tell us what is the difference between that and, uh, you know, polls and other kind of, uh, um, systems and which one generally performs better? Right. Yeah, so um, a prediction market, as I mentioned, is a place where people buy and sell contracts on future events. It's sort of usually they're like binary options. Uh, a selective market, or what we called in the Cogitron project a supermarket, is one where 
there are much fewer traders, but they're pre-selected to, to be good at the task. Um, mm-hmm. And you might think there are some theories that, um, that says that, you know, for a market you really work well, you can't just have like super smart, knowledgeable people there. You need, you need other people, like they call them noise traders, who basically come in and uh, supply liquidity. That's a very nice way of putting it. Uh, a more um, evolutionary way of putting it is to say that they're, you know, a good market has to have shark and fish. So the shark needs, yeah. needs to feed on something in order to, to, to keep them going. Um, but in our market, we had a market with only sharks, with only people who were really good at this. Um, and we had this market where you don't, um, you don't have to, for you to buy a contract, uh, it, it doesn't have to be that another person is selling it to you. So it's not a direct one-to-one bet with another person. There was an automated mm-hmm. market maker that always would uh, offer you uh, a price to buy and sell. And so that, that uh, to some extent, addressed the issue of, you know, if I'm in a market with all these smart people, why should I bet against them? Because maybe they're just as smart or smarter than me. Um, but with the market maker, a lot of people were able to engage and move the prices to uh, to, to where they, they gave us very accurate probabilities of, of what will and won't happen. Um, mm-hmm. So that's so that's the selective market. Prediction polls is, is the practice of eliciting forecasts, usually probabilistic, but it could be other quantitative forecasts, um, aggregating them statistically, and then giving people accuracy scores after, after you know the outcome. So it's a different way to elicit the same information. You know, people might have expectations about which event might happen or not, but in one case is they're, they're bidding on a prediction market. In another case, they, they just give you the, the forecast straight up and then you have to, as a researcher, you have to aggregate it. Yeah. Um, so generally, which one um, performs better? Are there comparisons um, towards that? Yeah, so initially, um, our initial sets uh, of, of comparison were like randomized experiments between prediction polls and prediction markets. And we found that prediction polls did better. So asking people just for straight up for their probability was better, especially for longer for longer term questions um, uh, that you know, may not resolve for like many months. Um, and the theory that we had there is that People don't like to bet on events that will not resolve for a while. So basically, their their money is is tied in. Um, they prefer mm-hmm. to 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 bet on outcomes that are you know a few days or a few weeks in advance, so a few weeks from from the moment of betting, so that they think they can get their money back quicker and sort of recycle it and keep mm-hmm. growing. And so there was not enough interest in those longer term questions. Um, However, uh, after we did some tweaks with the markets, you know, start with that market maker and look for uh, to select better forecasters, um, then we were seeing that polls and, and markets were basically head to head by the last year of the tournament. Oh, interesting. So um, are the polls also conducted on the selected uh, people or... Yeah, they're so you, you so you have the, why they're similar. So you have the select the mm-hmm. the super forecasters in polls or markets, and then you have the non super forecasters mm-hmm. in polls and markets. And what we find that 
what matters is whether you have super forecasters or not, but not whether you have a poor market. That that was much less important by the end. We had tweaked the markets uh, and the polls well enough up until like the systems were basically equal, even though they started at, at a different level. Uh, by, by the time we had introduced the market maker and made them more, more selective, they were, they were equal. And even the non-selective markets and polls were also at an equal level as well. Yeah. Um, and now I'm curious. So for uh, the news media, whenever they report a poll for uh, some uh, political campaign, I think they right. still, I don't know, call people or sure. um, just randomly poll if the selected uh, group of super forecaster does a better job, then why don't they talk to universities or research group and yeah. just get polls from them and make a prediction? Yeah, so that's a, that's, that's a very good question. So um, so I think of them, or we think of them as two different types of polls. There's the opinion polls that ask you, who would you vote for? What's your preference, right? And those are yeah. usually on, should be on a representative sample of the population. So you maybe you ask a thousand people, but you're trying to predict what, you know, 200 million will do mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. Prediction polls are, you know, what do you think will happen? And for that, you don't have to ask for a representative sample. You need a sample of people who are good at prediction. Um, and, you know, those people are trying to get it right. The, 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 the uh, respondents to an opinion poll are not really trying to get it right. They're just telling you what they plan to do. Um, however, you can also ask, when you do an opinion poll, you can also ask just, you know, the representative sample of the population so what? Who, so who do you think will win? And it turns out that uh, the answer to that question is actually more predictive of the outcome than the than the answer to the question who who you vote for. So in 2016, mm. if you ask people who you vote for, more people said Clinton. So she came into into the last stretch with like a few percentage points lead. Yeah. But if you ask people who do you think will win? Uh, it was much closer to 50-50 or, or Trump was just a little bit ahead. So people were recognizing that even though they plan to vote a certain way, people in their social group, in their in their social networks are giving them signals that they plan to vote for Trump. And that turned out to be um, the more predictive question. And that's not the case just for 2016. It's been documented over the last 20 years. So... Whether you're asking a, a question from a representative sample or from this selective sample of really good forecasters, mm-hmm. it pays to ask them a prediction question in addition to just asking them about their views and preferences. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that also reminds me of the book, Thinking in Bats. When you think about yeah. uh, the predictions, uh, ask or ask yourself whether you would bet money on that, right? Instead of what's your opinion, what you want it to be. Yeah, that's it's it's actually right here. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a book I'm I'm reading. Yeah, so um, so you have preferences and you have some predictions, and then the question is, do you do you feel strongly about uh, strongly enough about your your predictions to make a bet on them, right? And sometimes sometimes it's inconvenient to make a bet, but if you can, and if you feel strongly about uh, that, you know the the conventional wisdom is wrong. Well, if you're right, you can make some some money of that. Or even if it's in a play money environment, you can 
you can gain reputation for 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 being good at that. So um, it's always good to think through a problem of like, what do I think will happen? How likely I think it is? And also, will I bet on this or against this and at what price? And if you think about it in both ways, it helps calibrate you in terms of, uh, it helps calibrate your expectations. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, do you have any other study or research outside of the um, political, you know, related forecasting or on business side or other domain? Yeah, so so we just completed um, a three-year study um, with uh, sponsored by the National Science Foundation of what we call the Human Forest Project, where mm-hmm. we had uh, we had uh, you know groups of humans making predictions about clinical trials. So we started the project in 2019, but in 2020, um, you know, of course COVID happened and all of a sudden people started caring about clinical trials. They started, you know, uh, you know, all of a sudden it was front page news if the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine is going to go past the clinical trial stage. And it was one of the most important stories in 2020. So it just happens that we had the front seat to that and we were making forecasts in the fall of 2020 and for the last for the last two years about how do people think um what people thought at the end will happen uh and so we had Mm. the crowdsourcing team which was myself and regina joseph and we had the machine learning team um who uh led by soli siddiqui who is now at american university and we wanted to see okay so is the machine learning method better at making those predictions about which drugs will pass through the clinical trial phases or are or are crowds of, of forecasters better at that um, yeah. and we found that um, you know the the crowdsourcing methods did much better uh, they, they had oh, wow. accuracy of that was uh, about 40 percent better in terms of Briar score or square there uh, so they uh, over two seasons, uh, in, in both seasons, uh, the combination of uh, crowd predictions did better than, um, than, than the machine models. And we are also finding benefits, especially at the individual level, of, um, of using the, the human forest system, which we built for this study. So um, mm-hmm. I was telling you a little bit about base rates and reference classes. So basically... Uh, the human forest system works by asking you to construct a base rate. So maybe you have like a database with 10,000 trials, and then we ask you, what is a predictively useful reference class? And you might say, well, this is a cancer drug, so I should I should select all trials in cancer. It's in phase two, so I should select phase two. It's a, it's a lead indication. That means that the drug company thinks that that, indication of that disease that is treating is probably the best first target and so that maybe that makes it more likely that it will be successful in the clinical trial so we ask people to select um, a reference class and then at the end they refine it to a way maybe you have a thousand trials at the end and we can tell you uh, the human forest system will tell you well based on those thousand trials 200 of them were successful so your base rate is about 20 percent um, and then we allow forecasters to make an adjustment. So you might say, well, I know something about this trial that's not in the database. Like I heard, you know, the earlier 
very early results and mm. and I think it's it's going to beat the odds. So I actually think it's 35% likely to, to succeed rather than 20. And so we aggregate this information. So in a way it's like people making a classification tree about what variables are important. Then we aggregate those trees into the human forest. Uh, and we find that that method of collecting the forecasts improves individual accuracy over just asking a person a straight up probabilistic question. And in aggregate, those collective estimates did far better than, uh, than, than a model that's trained on the same data uh, in, in, in predicting the outcomes. Yeah, that's super interesting. So uh, does it mean sometimes it's hard to use data always to represent useful information? And then, I mean, at at the current level of research or data representation, data collection, there is some type of information human adjusts digest better than algorithms. Yeah, so we think that part of it is you know, how big is the data set? So in our case, we collected data set from that had over 10,000 trials, but it wasn't millions, right? So you, maybe you can't yeah. train the most powerful algorithms. Uh, another thing is that how dynamic is the environment? So uh, drug development changed a lot around COVID, right? There was a lot more mm-hmm. money from the government coming in. There were different priorities. And so... People are much better at adjusting to changing rules or changing or changing settings. Um, you know, it's hard to tell the model. Well, we know we trained you on the data from the last ten years, but this is going to be different. Well, if you if you cannot specify exactly in which way the present is different from the past, the the, the model you know becomes less accurate. And people are better at adjusting in real time to 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 such changes. And COVID is sort of a dramatic example where there was this global epidemic and the US government is putting in like hundreds of billions of dollars in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, things are changing in in more subtle ways uh, in in other environments. And sometimes you might not even detect that, that, that they're changing. And those are the kinds of cases where collections of humans can do very well where even when the data patterns are sort of breaking down and the models are uh, are losing their accuracy, um, mm-hmm. or, or or the 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 accuracy of the model is diminishing, so it's always helpful to have a check, even in a relatively big data environment, to have uh, forecasters, sometimes small collections of forecasters, making predictions about important events. And when the environment is dynamic, it's even more important and sometimes can get you much closer to to the eventual truth than, than just having one model and, and following it all the time. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that's uh, um, very important. And uh, um, so during um, your d- uh, explanation of the forecasting, especially uh, for the teaming, you talk about aggregating some results and also what should talk you had, you mentioned sometimes when you're facing two different opinions, simply aggregating that performs um, better. Um, Can you share more about this technique and how can it help us uh, make better predictions? Yeah, so that's known as the wisdom of the crowd phenomenon. 
it um, mm-hmm. it it was popularized like more than a hundred years ago by Francis Galton, who was basically at a at a farm fair, and there was a price, you know, try to predict the the weight of this ox, and so people would put in in little paper, they would put in estimates, uh, you know, this ox is eight hundred pounds or twelve hundred pounds, and they collected, I think it was several hundred estimates, uh, and when when they rank ordered them and selected the median, it turned out that the median was within a pound or two of the actual estimate and it was better than all but one one of the estimates. So uh, the crowd together as a whole or the median in this, in this case was better than almost any one individual. And that was a dramatic example, which is why it gets quoted uh, very often, mm-hmm. but in many cases, if you have a crowd and you aggregate their information, I mean, you can start with like a very simple mean or median, that aggregate will be better than most individuals and sometimes even all of the individuals that are giving you the estimates. Certainly over many, many questions, the crowd will outperform the large majority of, of, of individuals. It takes a very exceptional uh, individual to to keep up and, and and be better than than a crowd of peers over over many many questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, if you're in a game show, if you're given the option to call somebody versus ask the audience to vote, pick the audience. <laughs> yeah, the audience the audience vote is much more likely to be accurate than just calling on one person. Um, yeah. And we find that. You know, it doesn't have to be a large audience. It doesn't have to be an audience of a hundred people. Even if, mm-hmm. if you could, even if you could pull ten or twenty, that's still much, much better than talking to just one person. Um, yeah. So, so the, the the benefits of the wisdom of the crowd accrue very quickly as the crowd increases from like one person to like ten, twenty. 50, etc. You don't you don't usually need a very large crowd to um, to 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 get to a high level of accuracy. Yeah, that's a very interesting um, takeaway. I think unless the one person you call has a very good uh, um, knowledge on the background, has very good knowledge of a, of a prior, then we can trust this person more. So I think right. there's sometimes when people talk about oh, just trust one person or crowd. I think they're uh, you know, different conditions, different nuances between sure. them. Um, and so, yeah, when I um, thinking about the elements, you know, this probability kind of forecasting training and teaming this uh, um, awareness of the group might perform better and tracking, uh, we learned this from experiments, but I'm curious, are there any, um, theory on the mathematical level or statistics level that we can prove this is true. Yeah, so um, the statistical theories are looking mostly at like um, th- there, there are two types of um, mathematical work that's important in being done. One is um, how do you best aggregate the the estimates of many people, and so there, there are ways you could do that to uh, reduce known biases, improve the information in the sample, and also reduce noise. Noise reduction happens to be super mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and then related to that, I, I put it in the same categories, like what are the kinds of people that you have in your sample? So ideally you want people who have different pieces of information so that when you aggregate them, you're not just, you know, repeating the same information that people have. It's just, you know, many different people give you information, but it's all the same. So you want non-overlapping information and you want to aggregate it in, in a certain way. Uh, one, one interesting example is that if you ask people the same question and they give you similar probabilistic answers, it's suboptimal to just take that answer. So, you know, for example, if you ask five experts about who's going to win the U.S. House elections, Democrats or Republicans, and all five tell you that Republicans are 70% likely to win, but they quote different reasons, different types of information, um, well, then the aggregate from those five folks, it's not the optimal aggregate, it's not 70%. Because to, together, they've given you many different signals for why the mm. event is more likely than not. And so uh, you should, what we call, extremize. So push the aggregate forecast towards towards the edge. So maybe it's not 70, but it's 75 or 80%. Um, and that's one aspect of aggregation that we have found over long periods of time to help, you know. When you have a crowd aggregate, usually it pays to push it a little bit towards uh, towards the edge. So that's one. So that's one type of work that's being done on the aggregation front. On the elicitation front, um, there's this this field in economics and computer science called uh, mechanism design, which is that how do you set up optimal incentives for people to give you their true beliefs? Yeah. How do you disincentivize them from trying to cheat? How do you give them um, feedback in the right way? Um, and a lot of that work on the polling front is in uh, what we call proper scoring rules. So a scoring rule is, one, is a rule that gives, tells, gives you information about your accuracy in a way that it incentivizes you to report your true beliefs. So if you, if you believe that an event is 80% likely, you don't say 85 or 70 with the intention of gaming the system because on average, the best score you can get is to report your true estimate. Um, and so there are more complicated reasons than just this one-off prob probability estimate. But I would say it's on the elicitations set, it's the mechanism design work. And on the aggregation side, it's, you know, it's basically applied statistics about putting together the information that people give you into one estimate that that's, that's the best estimate you can have. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing that. I think one takeaway is when someone give you an estimation, uh, don't just take that number, ask why. I think that help you make decision. And in the context of building advanced data science and machine learning models, it's also same. Uh, maybe your data also does well on the test set, but it could still be you know random or you're lucky looking right. at those, um, you know, Inter, how, try to interpret the results. Look at those, uh, you know, Shapley value or feature importance score. Try to understand why. I think now data scientists start to have more awareness about um, the why 
of things. Uh, it's still sometimes hard to do like causal analysis for a machine yes. learning model, but we can still try to form some assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that um, has helped me and our research team is if you were to, to invest time in building a sophisticated model with many features on the side, have a simple model with very few features that you understand very yeah. well. Maybe it's not so great on average, but you understand it and you can look at the, the two of them. And so when they, um, when they diverge, that tells you that, you know, maybe you should look at your complicated model that you wouldn't know it was something weird was happening unless you compare it to something that's, that's, that's easy to spot and easy to check. So we would have these regression based aggregation models, but then we'll just have like a simple mean. And if, if the two models diverge, we would know that we need to, we need to check on the data and see what's going on. Maybe the simple model is wrong in that case, or maybe the, the sophisticated model has, has a bug somewhere. We don't know, mm -hmm. but at least we have in our mind that it's something, it's something worth checking. And that's the more complicated the model becomes, the more important it is to maintain a simple benchmark against which to, to compare it. Yeah, I think that's very important to always start a simple model, something you can understand, especially with a more advanced tool. Sometimes simple model can serve as just part of your exp explanatory data analysis um, to help you exactly. understand more about your data. So don't skip that step. Yeah, that's a really good advice. And uh, you also talked about how do you design your questions, right? I think that's also important because sometimes the question can bias people and influence their answer, right? If I ask you, hey, are you angry today? You might just start exactly. to think about events, the bad events this morning that might just make you feel angry already. And also, yeah, and during those um, campaigns, questions, I think people also afraid people might judge them if they pick a candidate sure. that's kind of not popular in their friends group. How are you going to make them feel safe, right? So do you have an advice in designing those questions? Yeah, so again, I'll go back to um, uh, ask the, the practice of asking predictive questions. So, so let's say mm -hmm. um, most people in your group, let's say, don't like Trump, right? Um, but maybe, yeah. but maybe you do for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and so, if I if I ask you, do you plan to vote for Trump? You might say, oh, um, you know, I'm just telling to, I'm just talking to the pollster, but I'm still have like my friends in mind, and if they hear me say that I would right. vote for Trump, they'll judge yeah. me. But if 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 I ask you. Um, who do you think will win, then you might say, well, I, I'm planning to vote for Trump, but I'm not, but, but, and I'm sure many people are, but they're, they're afraid to, to tell the pollsters about their intention. And so asking a predictive question, it's a way to get at people, um, and to get at people's intentions without judging them, right? Because you might predict something mm -hmm. will happen, even if you don't want it to happen. Uh, but 
often the two are a little bit correlated. There's a little bit of wishful thinking and you can catch that wishful thinking, like what, what do people wish will happen by just asking them, like, what do you think might happen? In a, in a non-professional forecasting environment, the, the, the two are very closely related. And so you can get that information without any kind of social disapproval by just asking them the predictive question. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. So can you share a little bit of uh, what is uh, applied behavior science? And for folks who are not familiar with, what are some, uh, you know, must know kind of points that you think people, especially data scientists, uh, should know or at least look into? Yeah, so um, so there's two two parts to the title, right? One is it's behavioral. That means that it it focuses on people's behavior. So whether it's voting or consumer behavior, employee, organizational behavior, it's something to do with how people act uh, and behave. And then the science bit is basically a set of tools for learning about the world, right? So it could be that you run experiments, that behavioral scientists love to run experiments where they, you know, randomize people to different conditions. But sometimes you have a quasi-experimental design where you have a randomly assigned, but you have some other way in which people vary. And you can you can try to find out, you know, what causes that, that variance. And so behavioral scientists are interested in predicting and in changing people's behavior. Um, and they do so in, you know, using basically social science methodology. Uh, what makes it applied is the questions you're asking, right? So rather than asking, you know, what, uh, you know, like a more general question about how the brain works, you're, you're asking questions about, you know, how do people get better at, you know, following up with their vaccine appointments? How, how do they uh, behave in a, in a setting where they're looking for new books and how do they find them? And so the behavioral science bit comes with a set of knowledge from behavioral science. You know, how are you more likely to persuade someone? How, what are the predictable behavioral patterns that people have? And also the scientific tools, which is, you know, how do you learn more? How do you test your hypothesis? And both the tools, the set of knowledge and the, ex the experimental or scientific practices can help you learn over time about what will change behavior, how, how can I better at predicting it, um, above and beyond just um, just running a simple A-B test. An A-B test is basically an experiment, mm -hmm. but you want it to be as informed as possible by your knowledge of these people and how they behave. And that could be from just academic science, but it could be from like past studies that your team has done and has summarized the results. And, you know, if, you, if they're summarized in a well enough way, it becomes a cumulative process where you keep learning about this set of individuals in, in these tasks. And, and over time, you, you become much better at predicting what will happen and also causing changes in, in, in that behavior. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And what are some uh, um, key findings in those behavior science experiments? Yeah, so one of the uh, 
one of the founders of, of, of that field was uh, is Richard Taylor, who recently won the Nobel Prize in economics. So uh, a, a big example was uh, their Save More Tomorrow program, where basically um, employers had the problem that um, they wanted their employees to save more for retirement. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of them were young. And so if you're young, maybe you think, okay, there's, there's 30, 40 years until I retire. So a lot of people weren't putting in uh, funds as part of their salary. So they said, okay, well, what do we know about uh, human psychology? And one is that once you set a default option, it, people stick with it. So, so let's say you come in as a new employee and your default is that you, that you uh, put in 3% of your salary, right? When the default was 0%, very few people switch from that default to say, no, I actually want to contribute. But when the default switched to like 3 or 4% of your salary, people are like, okay, that's, that's good enough. I, I'm not going to change it. So there was the status quo bias of just basically having a default and sticking with it. And the other issues that they they know about psychology is that people think about money in nominal terms. And mm-hmm. so if you get like a 5% raise, but there's 5% inflation, uh, people like to keep their nominal salary. So like if I was making 100,000 and now I'm making 105, okay, that feels like a raise. So maybe I can contribute more of that raise towards retirement uh, and in that way, it will feel like, you know, I'm still making like more than before nominally and people look at the nominal. So maybe out of the 5,000 extra, I put in 3,000 for retirement and 2,000 extra. It still yeah. feels like a raise, even though there's inflation. Um, and also there is inertia, right? So if I keep, if I start at 3% and I keep getting raises and a lot of that raise goes towards retirement, um, most people didn't touch that plan for many, many years. So over time, the percentage of your salary that goes towards retirement increases. And, you know, those people are going to end up in a much better place when retirement comes than than others who were defaulted into a plan that where they didn't contribute anything. So it was defaults, nominal versus real um, Mm -hmm. prices and inertia. And so, by knowing about this, these behavioral quirks, they could design a plan that worked over many years. And the scientific part was that they tested it against different plans and they found out that that's, that that's the one that maximized how much people were saving for retirement. Um, and so that was, there, there are many other uh, examples about how do you make people more likely to pay their taxes? How do you mm-hmm. make people more likely to change their light bulbs to LEDs so they conserve energy? How do you make people conserve energy more generally? It turns out that if you give people reference information about their neighbors and you say, well, you know, your neighbors are a little bit better than you at, um, at energy con- conservation, you know, that motivates people to also do better. It has to be real data, so you can't just give people fake information, but if you can present information in such a way that you compare people to peers, they get competitive and they want to do better than, than their peers. (laughs) So those are the kinds of, uh, those are the kinds of motivators that are not just straight up incentives. It's not just like we pay you more to save energy. 
but it's it's mm-hmm. other it's other motivations that people have that um, that can push them or can nudge them. Uh, that's the technical term uh, that Taylor uses: is nudge them to behave better, uh, whether that's for their health or for the environment or for their financial situation. And that field has grown um, over the last 20 years. There are many such uh, behavioral science units within governments in many countries. There are behavioral science units in, in private companies. And, uh, it's, it, and the reason why it's growing is because it's shown its value for the companies and for the governments and understanding, predicting, and changing behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, so for data scientists, how can we update our model to improve performance using, you know, all the topics we talk about today? Yeah, so so there's some basic stuff that any modeler would know, which is like you need to look from time to time, you need to fix bugs. And if the packages are changing, you need to update it so the model doesn't stop working. If there's too much data and the model is slowing down, you need to tweak it and optimize it and make it work faster. So this is the mm-hmm. the, the basic sort of uh, stuff that, you know, whether you're a software developer or a data scientist, it's part of the, it's part of the work. Um, and then there, 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 the less obvious issues, which is that, well, uh, usually when you make a model, you make some assumptions, right? Maybe you read on the issue, you do research, and you you put in those assumptions there, right? Maybe it's an initial parameter setting or how you weigh a certain set of information versus another. And so over time, as you learn more about the world, you might change your assumptions, and that's and that's great, as long as you didn't make like any any error, you don't even have to excuse yourself. It's better. You've learned something new, you're changing your assumption, you're putting that mm-hmm. that new and improved assumption into your model. You also learn more about the environment. Um, so like if it's a predictive model, you learn more about the environment and you come up with new ideas for features, right? So some of them are models that sort of drive themselves, but in many cases, it pays to like think through the behaviors in there and say, what are some features that I think will be predictive, right? And so maybe initially your data set was small and you couldn't test all the hypotheses about different features, but now as it, as it grows, you can. Um, and then finally, it's the issue where, um, yeah, as you add features and as you add tweaks and you know edge cases, your model will get more and more complicated. So it always pays to compare it to that simple version and say, well, if they're diverging, is, is it because my increasingly complicated method is getting better? Or is it because it's gotten so complicated that there's some issue with it that initially I don't understand, but I need to look into? So it's those things about changing assumptions, building in more features, and comparing performance uh, over time against a simple benchmark that can help us, uh, you know, cumulatively improve the model over time. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, specifically about collecting data, um, how can we collect data and information better? Yeah, so so um, with I've thought about this mostly as, you know, 
from from a forecaster's perspective, where you yeah, know, yeah. they try to predict this election and there are polls out there and there's qualitative news stories and there's maybe information about how elections work in that country. So, but a lot of it uh, can be portable to like you building a model. So rather than giving me a, a forecast straight up about who will win the election, you might say, well, like I'm going to take all this data and make a model and the model will make the prediction, but you're still building in your judgments in that model. And so it's important to a keep looking at more relevant information. Is there something that my model didn't incorporate either as a data source or as a as an assumption? And you know, is there something new that I can do with the data? And that's that's the feature engineering aspect where the data was coming in, but you just didn't know what to do with that aspect of it. And so that's those are the sort of more behavioral and cognitive issues, right? And there's just just there's just the, the point that you know data sources are changing. Maybe your uh, the folks that you thought were giving you reliable data, uh, their data is not so reliable anymore. So you need to check a lot, uh, you know, how your data pipeline is working. That's not a behavior. That's not so much like complicated behavioral issues. Just something that's hard to do consistently. And so people who do well at this like very basic thing, like do I make sure that you know I have enough data and that the data is good quality? People who spend enough time to do that usually do better than 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 those that don't. Even if even if the folks who spend less time with the data are building out a more complicated model. Uh, and so, in in your in your latest uh, podcast episode, you uh, you worked uh, you 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 spoke to um, uh, to a modeler who was spending a lot of time on the quality of the data, and you know that 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 paid off, and that happens yeah over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And you also. Um, mentioned uh, in the good judgment project in the beginning, you have a lot of unlikely events. The accuracy score was pretty bad. And what did you do about it? Yeah, so um, that's an issue about uh, sampling information over time. So when we're running a poll, it's easy to think, what is a representative sample of the population, right? You want to match certain demographic characteristics, maybe party identification. So that's a cross-section. You want, you want people who are representative of the larger population. Um, when information is revealed over time, you still need to think about representativeness. So basically, is the information I get early representative of the information I will get later? Mm. So in our case, we were making predictions about certain events like Will Putin leave power by the end of 2022? Well, uh, people mostly don't leave power unless they're like a, there's a scheduled election or something. So those events are unlikely. But if you ask the question that way, and the event happens, it will happen early. So it might happen in April or May. Uh, the only way to find out that the event hasn't happened, that Putin is still in power, is to wait until January 1st, 2023, right? And so the yes is coming early, the no is coming late. Um, and in our case, what that was making us do is to say, wow, we had really bad accuracy scores on these questions where the events happen early. 
And do we still want to do our extremization? That was the thing that I told you where you, you get some people telling you 70%, but then you push it to 80, right? Well, on the flip side, if you have a bunch of people telling you the probability is low and then you extremize it, you know, let's say you got from 20 to 10%, and then when the event happens, you get hit, you get a bad accuracy score. So there's always this part where um, unexpected events will happen early and we'll say, should we really be extremizing? Because we got hurt badly on these couple of questions. And if we keep getting hurt, then extremizing is going to hurt us over the long run. But then we'll keep reminding ourselves that, well, you know, the unexpected events happen early and expected non-events, the status quo resolutions, we have to wait until the end. So we would usually just stick with their with our guns, keep extremizing, and then by the end, all the questions are closed and all the many, many questions with status quo resolutions closed where basically the event didn't happen. It turns out that it paid off for us to extremize. It paid off to be confident, even despite those early surprises, which sort of came by design. Uh, and so just knowing when you learn certain information uh, is very important in, in tweaking um, any kind of predictive model. Uh, so in a more commercial aspect, you know, there may be a difference between early adopters and later adopters. There may be differences between the first few visitors to a restaurant who leave reviews and the later visitors to a restaurant who leave reviews. So if you have enough data for over many years about that pattern, you can guess how the early versus late um, data inputs are different. But if you're just coming up, if you just have a new a new question, even if you don't have data, you should keep in mind that the early data may not be representative of the mm -hmm. old one, and you need to keep on checking to see if the patterns hold or if there's uh, or if the pattern is more complicated, where it systematically changes over time. Yeah, that's a good point. And then you mentioned uh, um, extremizing the data. So how do you do that? Do you change your question or? No, it's the same question. It's just at the aggregation level, if you say, well, I, I take a simple mean and the simple mean is telling me that the event is 20% likely. So mm -hmm. we push those probabilities towards the edges, you know, in this case towards zero. And then we train the data, you know, let's say based on prior prior seasons, uh, prior complete seasons to say, well, on average, when you have a 20% forecast, it's best to extremize it up until 12%, right? There's like a function where you take an estimate and you push it towards the edges. You can train that function based on past data um, and, it, and, it, and you can get to, to a stage that's much better than no extremizing at all. So is it like kind of like a logistic regression you want it, to? It's sort of like of... a logistic function where you translate yeah, a set of it. probabilities to more extreme ones. Yeah. And mm. that, that turned out to help a lot in the geopolitical setting over, you know, four years and almost 500 questions. We're yet to, we're yet to establish if it's helping a lot in the life sciences domain. Um, and that's, that's where we, you want to be cautious anytime you enter a new domain but you also might have the priors. Okay, this extremization worked in geopolitics and in, in economics. Let me try out if it works here. And I need to wait until I have enough data to really say if it's helpful in this domain or if there's an exception here. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like for human decisions as well, I think in the beginning when we think about, uh, do I want to go to this event or something, we right. might 
you know, in our mind, give our probability, but eventually you have to translate that into an action. So you have to make it into, you know, zero or one, you either go or not go. So another question is, at what point do you decide to extremize the probabilities? Like, when do you decide, oh, I start updating, I'm going to put it in like a transformation and decide, you know, the classes of the actions. So extremization works when you aggregate multiple uh, multiple people or multiple views. So mm-hmm. if all I have is my own judgment, I want to train myself so I'm well calibrated. But if it's just my judgment, then I shouldn't be extremizing. Uh, um, because the extremization helps. Uh, it's, it's sort of a statistical artifacts of putting a bunch of judgments together. If I'm just by myself, then what I would do um, ideally is make predictions on many different events. Maybe they're about politics, maybe about their, your personal life, and then track the outcomes and then draw what we call calibration curve. So if I say, uh, you know, of all the time I made a 10% predictions, did 10% of the events happen? All the times that I made a 30% forecast, did the events happen 30% of the time? And so if you have a calibration curve and you're very close to perfectly calibrated, then you shouldn't extremize. If it turns out that you're on like underconfident, like you give forecasts that are too close to 50-50, yeah. then you should push. And very often individuals, not crowds, but individuals are overconfident. So mm-hmm. um, in particular around the edges. So many times people are like, oh, I'm 100%, you know, sure that this will happen. And that's usually a bad sign. When someone um, tells you that they're 100% sure of something that for which you think there's uncertainty, chances are they're either overconfident cognitively or they're trying to persuade you about something. <laughs> so they are yeah. you know, extremizing themselves to be more persuasive. And in either case, you should take their estimate with like... Um, with a large dose of salt, not even a grain, right? Usually there, there, there's a reason to doubt people who give you 100% estimates. Um, and you should avoid those as well, unless you're really, really sure. And there's very few important cases where, where you're that sure. There's usually some chance that something might happen in between the time you make the prediction and the time the event happens that you should, mm-hmm. you know, you should tone it down a little bit. So there's this paradox where Individuals are sometimes overconfident and shouldn't be quite as confident, especially around the edges. Uh, mm-hmm. But crowds are underconfident, and you might want to extremize and make them more confident. Um, and so it works differently for individuals versus collections or crowds. Yeah, yeah, this is really important. Also, for our machine learning model, think about a binary classification. The default of the model always calibrate at 0.5, but that might not be true for different cases, right? I think exactly. um, as a data scientist, we need to think about maybe your model is kind of underconfident in certain cases. Maybe you need to recalibrate the data. Maybe you should uh, dichotomize it at, I don't know, 0.4 or somewhere. It depends on the use case. Yeah, yeah. I think in most cases, 50-50 is the default for like if it's a binary, like yes, no. But it's rarely the best one. Like usually you know something that the environment that might make you say, well, this is actually more likely than 50-50 
and the better starting point is 60 or a better start starting point is 30. Like just as in the World Cup example, will a South, will a South American team win, win the World Cup? Maybe, but maybe it doesn't mean 50-50. Usually you can do better than 50-50. Right. Uh, and that that's that holds for when you make a forecast and it counts for when you set like a starting point for, for a model. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Actually, um, another anecdote, we had a like a team event. Uh, we tried to understand everybody better. So we want to ask people, what does maybe mean to you? Someone said maybe means it's a way of me saying, no, I will never go there. Somebody <laughs> mean maybe I would, you know, 70% go there. So maybe right. it doesn't mean 50-50, right? So I think, yeah, that's a very interesting. I think it applies in our life to understand other people's language. When people say yes or no, it could mean different things, different likelihood of commitment based on their personality. People sometimes try to be vague, because they don't like to be held to account. Like you said, you're 80% likely to come, <laughs> but you didn't come. What happened, right? So when you say yeah. maybe, yeah. You, you have the excuse, well, said maybe, but actually it was just 30% likely. Um, so, right. you know, people use qualifiers sometimes to be something strategically to be vague about something that they don't want to be pinned down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. Um, so you mentioned uh, earlier in your career, you read blogs like 538. Um, so what do you think about it now? Do you think if you were to do it, you adopt, you know, selective market or some other strategies? Yeah. So, so I think there's always um, a benefit to trying to working with many, several different models, right? So, Nate Silver uses a statistical model. He's probably the best in the business at these kind of statistical models, but they sometimes yeah. diverge from prediction markets or other estimates. And it's helpful to look at both and it's helpful to compare where they, they diverge. And sometimes Nate Silver's model will be right. Sometimes the markets will, will get it right. Um, I think recently has been a little bit dismissive of prediction markets he calls them the scottish teens because some of the biggest mm -hmm. and best prediction markets are run out of scotland and the uk but <laughs> much of the time if you look at you know many many years i would say that you know prediction markets have done pretty well um and so has his model but i wouldn't just say oh it's nate silver is always right and, and the prediction markets are always wrong ideally you you can triangulate uh, among multiple sources and, uh, you know, models and markets. And often you can do better than just looking at one of them separately. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, going back to your career, so what are some mistakes you made in your career? Yeah. So when I was in my 20s, I usually made the mistake of getting excited about new ideas and starting a lot of projects. Um, mm -hmm. so, and then what happens is that you work on many things at the same time, but any one of them slows down. And so the rate of completing projects actually slows down and in, in business, but it also in academia, what counts is how many projects you complete, not how many projects you start. Um, and yeah. so that's something I've learned to be more selective 
uh, about the projects, be they research or, 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 or software development or private projects, um, mm. and to try to get a few started, but then complete them quickly. Um, a little bit later on, what I found as I was sort of diagnosing myself is that if you start a lot of projects, many of them won't work as well as you thought they would. The promise, either scientific or a commercial promise, wouldn't wouldn't quite be there as you collect more information. And so something that um, I perhaps didn't do is what I call optimal quitting, which is that you know, if it seems like this project won't work, let's say if it's a paper and it's being rejected by a bunch of journals, maybe put it out as a working paper and, you know, so the world knows about it, but stop working on it so much because yeah, it seems like it's not that, it's the, the high hopes that you had about it haven't materialized. But if you keep working on that project, then you have less time to work on others. So I would say optimal starting of projects is important and early enough I started too many and optimal quitting is also important where you cut your losses for for certain cases. Um, Now in a team environment, in a way it's harder to quit and it's harder to stop a project because you feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of people depend on you and trust you to keep going in it. But there's an upside, which is that Maybe there's a peer or a junior member of your team who is actually more excited about this project. And so you can talk to them and say, would you like to take over the lead of this and maybe complete it? And I had several cases where I became much less active uh, and someone else completed the project. Maybe they got credit, which was well-deserved because they completed it. And it was good for their career and it was Indirectly, it was good for mine as well because I got to spend this this more time on this other project that was more excited and potentially higher value for me. So it's starting and quitting uh, that I, initially I didn't I didn't get the balance right, but now I have learned and and I feel like I've I'm much better calibrated on, on both ends. Yeah, I think that's really important because a lot of times we have the attachment of our pride, our ego to the project we're invested in and uh, not all data science project will come out uh, you know with uh, meaningful results or maybe like you mentioned your interests change and totally normal i think we don't want to quit every project if you're noticing you're quitting too often maybe also take a step back asking yourself what what's going on uh, why you're quitting Right. Um, and uh, but if you really feel not passionate about it, I think um, think about the option of quitting. And I, I really like your strategy. So one is if you quit a project, you write a paper or some documentation so other people know uh, what you did, something, even if, if it didn't work, people can. Right learn something from it, or you can extract some useful uh, code packages you wrote, and maybe you want to re- use it for your future project, right? And like you mentioned, um, you don't want to work on it, share with the team, maybe some other people want to pick it up. Uh, it doesn't mean it's the end of the project. So there are a lot of uh, creative ways, yeah, you can kind of transition out of uh, a current project. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, um, you also mentioned that 
uh, I was asking you, like in our career and life, how do we change our mind? I think you mentioned aim to experience some large surprises. Can you elaborate on that? Oh yeah. So, um, so I meant to say,、um, sorry if I wasn't clear. Aim to experience fewer large surprises. So,、um, so be surprised, be majorly surprised less often, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. And so, one of the ways to do that is. To be right from the start, which is very difficult, but you can stack the odds a little bit in your favor by doing more careful research at the、mm-hmm. beginning. And the other way to experience fewer large surprises is to experience more small surprises. Right? If you're proactively looking at for information, you're more likely to find it early, so that、um, when the time comes,、um, you know. Some big piece of information doesn't smack you in the face in a big surprise. So, the the example I like to give is you know,、um, think about political event. Let's let's go back to an election, right? So one way you can think about it is to say, well, I'll look for what happens in the election, but、I'll、only read the front page of the New York Times, right?、Mm-hmm. And You know, there's only so much space on the front page of the New York Times. So most of the days, there will be no information about this particular election on the front page. But another thing you can say is, if all the information you had was the New York Times, is like, let's read the relevant page that are about, let's say, U.S. politics, and let's see if the, if there are stories in there, right? And、yeah. the, the person who only reads the front page. Uh, we'll get few surprises, few chances to update because there's very few stories that made it there. But the moment there's a front page story, it means it's a big story, and there'll be a big update. Oh, this person who was thought to be extremely unlikely to win is now in the lead, right?、Uh, but if you were the type of person who was looking at the U.S. politics section, you would have seen those signals early. You would have updated, and by the times it becomes it becomes front page news, it wouldn't surprise you as much. So,、um, so that's the case for politics. But usually, there are early signs you can see for for many events, and if you look careful enough,、uh, you end up being、uh, you you end up with more small surprises and chances to update, and fewer large surprises, and that's a way of tracking over time if. If you're spending enough effort, or if you're if you're if you're actively open-minded enough, so that、uh, you're really tracking the evolving evidence and having the best possible, the most accurate possible beliefs that you can have. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And、uh, what are something you learned from your mentor or advisor? Yeah, so I've 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 been fortunate to have many mentors over the years. Uh, Andrew Peng Yu was my early mentor at Analysis Group in the in my early、um, in my early role of working with data. So、uh, a lot of it was like just technical work,、uh, but also just habits of mine about like how do you make sure that how do you double check your code, how do you make sure that you get the simple things right. So some of it was just. Technical stuff, but very very important. And then from my academic collaborators and and、um, and advisors, such as Jason Dana, Phil Tetlock, and and Barb Mellers, I've、uh, one thing that 
they're great at, and I'm trying to, to, to learn from it is, you know, they have a great sense of like, what is an interesting research question? What is something that many people would want to know about? Um, so it's not just like what data is available and what you could do, but uh, how can you answer an important question that if you answer it, many people will care about. So I have, um, I have learned to, to, to ask those questions of myself early before I start a project. Um, because initially, you know, there's certain things are just exciting to, to me, but I, I've started to look more structurally into like, is this an important question that many, many people care about? And so can I make a difference yeah. by answering it in a better way? Um, initially I thought more about like, do I have what it takes to answer this question, which is different from whether it's an important one. And so, um, mm. th that has been transformational in the types of things I, in the types of projects that, that I start. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So uh, I think when we just started, we all want to start working on cool things. So we're just focusing on the how and what. I think sometimes it's useful to ask why is this project um, impactful enough for me to invest all the time and resources? Exactly. I think when we're yeah. young, we like things that are cool, things that we can either we're either very good at or it would give us some learning opportunity which is also important but it also it's it's important to know like if i'm successful how big of a difference would that make yeah and uh, for data scientists what are some advice do you have for them specifically like what an element of decision science then you want to you want data scientists to adopt more in their day-to-day -day work yeah, so I would so I would just say straight up, um, for now, um, there aren't that many great books about how to think better as a decision scientist, like the psychology of mm. being a good decision scientist. But I would say start by reading Super Forecasting, which is the book that Phil Tetlock and Dan Gardner, Dan Gardner wrote based on the Good Judgment Project that I was a part yeah. of. But instead of thinking about being a forecaster, think about, okay, how can I extract insights into that, not as a forecaster, but as a modeler? Because as a modeler, mm -hmm. you're still making predictions, you're still making assumptions, and turn that, uh, turn all the all that you learn from super forecasting book and think about it, how, how do I, how can I apply it to my data science work? And I think, a lot of the lessons are applicable without making too much of a jump, but you have to read it in the mindset of like, how can I translate this? It needs to be translated, but it's usually doable to translate it if you're, you know, if you're thoughtful, you can translate a lot of these lessons into better practices for being a, 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 a better data scientist. Because at the end, whether you're a forecaster or a data scientist, you want to learn something new about the world and you want to get closer to the truth. And so mm -hmm. if you have that kind of mindset, you can translate it into some very specific behaviors that, 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 that can help you down the road. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And before we wrap up, what do you think about the future of decision science and, you know, forecasting this type of work? I have a sort of unique perspective because I have been running tournaments where, 
there's human crowds and machine models sort of head to head in a horse race. And we keep getting surprised in how well crowds do relative to the models. So I would say I'm optimistically, I optimistically think that over the next few years, uh, despite all the advances in AI and, and machine learning, people would have an increasing appreciation of how of how well uh, of how important human judgment is and how good it can be yeah. if 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 um, if uh, collected in the right way. Over the longer term, um, as models get better and and people work more on interfaces, uh, I think there will be a much wider scope for what we call hybridizing. So the idea that mixing in human insights and data and models, we're, we're doing that in a very specific way in the human forest. Um, but there'll be many, many ideas for how do you combine data and insights, uh, many new insight, many new interfaces and will be, will be tested over the next, you know, let's say five to 10 years. And it will be a very important skill to be able to, you know, if you're in the data science, if you're making the models, to be able to communicate to other people who are also putting in insights, whether maybe they're subject matter experts or other forecasters. Uh, it will be important for the data scientists to communicate to the experts, and it will be important for the experts to learn more about the, how the models work so that they can interact better with them. So I'm seeing maybe over the next five to 10 years, will be much more hybridization and uh, there will still be a division of labor of who is supplying the human inside and who, who is building the models, but they will ideally get much closer together so that uh, you build a model that's helpful to the person making the decision or, or you have person that's, uh, you have a person, let's say an expert who keeps supplying you ways to improve your model. So, you're more accurate and then you're more likely to to make to, to make the right decisions um yeah that sounds very exciting so you mentioned human forest um is it kind of like an ensemble of uh you know human decisions and uh, machine predictions yeah it's an ensemble of many humans making a decision making predictions that that are aggregated uh, we tested it against a machine model, but there was no interaction between the humans and the models. We can aggregate yeah. them statistically, but there was no interaction uh, be between those. Uh, in the future, we're looking for different ways that the models and the humans can interact. But for now, we what Human Forest allows you to do is it gives access, uh, it gives humans access to the raw data and 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 gives them a way to make it predictively useful. It's not a fancy model, it's just often it's just counting. You know, there were 100 events like this one in the past, 20 events, 20 of them will happen. The base rate is 20%, it's super simple, but that simplicity is helpful to people who may not understand how models work and a much less sophisticated, simple base rate can be more helpful to a person than like a much maybe a more accurate model estimate that people don't understand. So yeah. we're at that point where we can show that having access to the data in the human forest environment helps. We haven't gotten to the point where we say, yeah, but if you have access to a model and you can tweak it, even though you're not a data scientist, that can also be helpful. 
once once the models get more complicated, the interfaces get more complicated, and it's harder to figure it out. We we have in past projects tried, but we haven't gotten to the point where there's like real synergy between mm-hmm. humans and models. So far, with human forest, we're finding that there's some synergy, uh, significant benefits of the synergy between humans and data, um, but. Uh, there'll be many, many different tests of uh, around that scope of human insights, data, and models. And I predict that we and, and, and other research teams will find better ways to, to combine it and uh, that eventually actually make improvements over time. Yeah, that's so exciting. I guess it can be in two ways. Like you mentioned, you aggregate the previous events. It's kind of like a simple model and you feed it to humans. I make the final decision or uh, I have some decision. I have some, I don't know, maybe some intuition I can't explain using data. And then I become a part of the prior. I feed it into the model and then you can analyze right. some more advanced stuff. Uh, maybe with uh, some deep learning, you an- analyze some images or, or tests, right, all together. Yeah. So for folks who are interested in this type of work, where can they read more or, you know, follow you? Yeah. So um, you can follow me at uh, Twitter at Pavel Dietanasov. I, I like to share research from decision science mm-hmm. and predictions. So from time to time. Um, if you're interested in in, in, in in this topic, that's follow me at Pavel Dietanasov um, on Twitter. So you should also read Super Forecasting, the book by 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 Fortetlock and, and Dan Gardner. Uh, and there's in, some interesting blogs. Uh, there's Astro Codex Ten blog uh, by Scott Alexander, and he. Uh, writes posts almost every Monday about what's happening with prediction markets and, and other prediction tools and what forecasts they're making. So, you know, what do prediction markets think about the upcoming election? What do they think about the situation in Russia and, and in, the, in the Ukraine? Um, and so if you, if you are into this, um, follow Astro Codex 10. I also love a part of uh, Vox uh, that's uh, their their it's called Future Perfect, and they often have material about the future in general, but also specifically about predictions. And that's always a great mm-hmm. read. Yeah, in general, um, between those, it it will it will give you a good background of what kinds of things people are are, are thinking about in the predictions crowd prediction space. And as you read more, you find others other sources that uh, that then hopefully will pique your interest. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'll add it to the notes. Um, what's something in your career and life right now you're excited about? Yeah, so um, um, we're very excited at Pito. We're very excited to have completed the data collection for the Human Forest Projects to have exciting, mm-hmm. positive results. And yeah. it's always exciting to, to complete the projects and to be at the point where you start being able to share the, the results of it. So that's one thing that's exciting. It's also when you when the active involvement in one project is is going down, there's yeah. more space for new projects and new ideas. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's very exciting to me, but I have learned that excitement doesn't always translate to getting into an, an amazing next project. So 
I'm trying to both be excited and very careful in yeah in, in the next in the next opportunity so that you know it turns out to be a worthwhile and something that um, that I you know I can hit the ground running and, and, and make a difference relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. Um, well, it was a great conversation. I learned a lot from you. Um, thank you again for coming to the show and uh, looking forward to learning more from your future researches. Thank you, Diane. It was a, it was a pleasure uh, to, to, to be at your podcast. I have, following, I have been following it for a while, so it, it's great to, to, to be on the other side. Thank you.